completely agree with you, Stephen, on Turkey. I think they will make some waves. And, you know, Soyuncu and Demiral are going to be integral in their defense. And then, you know, you've obviously got Kalinoglu as well and Yilmaz. So they've got like a kind of spine there. I think the team that underperforms is going to be Italy. But the question is just whether amongst this youth, amongst this potential, amongst this form, they've actually got the kind of experience and team ethic to do it on the big occasion. Ben Jacobs before Euro 2020 kicked off, giving Italy a fair bit of stick. And Ben, like Stephen and Paul and many pundits, expecting a lot from the supposed dark horse of Turkey. Well, Group A is done and dusted in the books after today's action. And Italy sit on top of the pile. Nine points from a possible nine. Turkey scored just one goal in their three games. No points and out of the tournament. And we take a look back at the final games from Group A today, as well as plenty of the action from the big sides in the last couple of days, including England, Scotland and Germany's victory over Portugal with myself, Ollie Wilson, Paul McDonald. But first up, Ben Jacobs talking more about the Italians. Yeah, I don't think, Ollie, that Italy's storm to win the group is a particular surprise. And of course, on paper, as you alluded to, when you looked at this group, you thought Turkey would be dark horses. Switzerland should have been stronger, although they don't score that many goals. And Wales were always going to be difficult. And in the end, they've been better than difficult. They've showed excellent resolve, clinical when it's mattered in other games. And of course, they could have even got a point from the defeat to Italy had Gareth Bale taken his chance. So I'm going to make no comment on Turkey. All I'm going to say is I did say <laughs> Denmark were more my dark horse. And, you know, if you took Turkey with Tosin, who, of course, is not part of the squad due to injury, maybe then they would have been a stronger prospect. But they obviously should have done better, especially because of the home advantage. And then just briefly on Italy, well, what they showed against Wales is that they've got a lot of depth and we know that about them. They don't concede many goals. We know that about them as well. That's 11 wins in a row and none conceded. But I said very openly at the beginning of this tournament that I thought Italy would get found out against stronger opposition. And I still stand by that because look at the 11 wins that they've had in a row. Estonia, Poland, Bosnia, Northern Ireland, Bulgaria, Lithuania, San Marino, Czech Republic, a very poor Turkey, a very average Switzerland, and a 10-man Wales. I don't look at any of those wins and feel surprised by it at all. So what I think is that Italy look incredible going forwards. It's refreshing to see the style under Mancini, but I still think if they fall behind in a game in this tournament, they're going out. I would add that um, I very clearly caveated the fact that we all said Turkey could be a dark horse, and I said that we'd jinx them because of that, and surely that has, became, <laughs> that has been the case. So um, that was a heavy caveat. Now, listen, Turkey are a mess, an absolute mess. The worst team I've seen in this competition by a, a gigantic distance. And I'm finding it quite difficult to explain what I've been watching. Um, they're not as bad as their performances are, certainly not as a collective group of players. But they, out of all the teams I've watched in the tournament, Turkey are the one that just don't seem to have any kind of 
they don't seem to have any kind of tactical nuance to them whatsoever. I, I don't. I'm not really able to recognise what they're doing, um, and that's the biggest indictment I can I could give against them. Is like with, with most other teams, even the weaker ones, you can see some coherent tactical plan. Turkey have been absolute shambles collectively in those three matches and and that includes from a tactical perspective it just wasn't clear what they were doing at all and as for the Italians I kind of agree with Ben a little bit um, they haven't played anybody yet but what I would say as well is um, Mancini made eight changes today I think and the Italian machine didn't really change much well, what, what they were trying to do and what they were trying to achieve on the pitch tactically personnel wise they looked, they looked pretty solid and pretty good again so that's that, that's very encouraging for Italian fans that you can take members out of that team and switch them around and they still look really, really good. So I think we wait, wait to see what they're like against a really good side, but um, you, can, you can only beat what's in front of you and they've been good so far. I think with the Italians as well, you mentioned the the eight changes today in this game. I think it's, for me, the performance against Wales today has almost highlighted that the, the initial starting lineups that Mancini used uh, for the Switzerland and the Turkey game were without a doubt the the best sides actually that we're going to see from Italy because a lot of people with with Verratti were very excited to see him come in. Obviously, he was carrying a knock coming into this tournament, which is why he probably didn't make the starting eleven for the first two games. But I felt today against Wales that actually Verratti at some points really slowed down, particularly in the first half, what Italy were trying to do in the middle of the park because he loves to be in control of the ball and and twist and turn away from the first defender that comes his way. And he was twisting and turning a couple of times into trouble where. Whereas you feel that perhaps Locatelli and others would have distributed the ball far quicker than Verratti was doing. And I think we've also seen today the the quality that Bernadeschi can put in an Italian national team level and the quality that Chiesa has as well, just waiting in the wings to come onto the wings and cause problems against teams with tired legs, perhaps in the knockout stages. It's highlighted the depth, sure, but I think it's also vindicated that the starting 11 we've seen in those previous two games with the, the odd change at, at fullback, of course, is probably Mancini's best footballing and cohesive unit to take into the knockout stages. And that's going to be a refreshed unit as well once we get into the, the real meat of this tournament. And I still think the Italians, I know, Ben, you pointed to the teams that they've played on this incredible run of form that they've had, particularly without conceding. But you can only beat who's in front of you. And if we're talking about England against Croatia being such a controlling performance, I think you can say from all of these performances that Italy have put in, that regardless if the scoreline hasn't been that impressive or the team they're playing hasn't been that impressive, what we have seen is the performance and the control that they've had in all of these games has been very impressive. And you talk about Wales could have had a point with Bale missing that opportunity, but there were opportunities for Italy to extend and add to their advantage today on time and time again, particularly in the first half. Belotti had a couple of good chances. Obviously, the free kick that hit the post as well. There's still more to come against better opposition in this tournament from Italy. And I think people that overlooked them too much and perhaps have been a little too harsh on the Italians coming into this tournament may end up reaping, uh, well, not no rewards, I guess, from their uh, from their comments going into the tournament. No, I completely agree. And, you know, part of the analysis for Italy is, I guess, me doubling down, having stated at the beginning of the tournament that they might have a wobble. And I think that there's a couple of key considerations going forwards. One is that, they're going to have a very good draw in the knockout stage, possibly against somebody like an Austria. And then the other thing which may go against them going forwards is that by winning the group, they leave Rome. I don't think it'll make a huge amount of difference. I believe that they go to Wembley Stadium next, but it'll be certainly interesting mm. to see how they fare in a slightly more foreign environment. 
away from that home crowd, away from that home advantage, which we've obviously seen benefit certain teams like Hungary's performance against Portugal was a good example of that. And that's why Turkey, again, was so disappointed because there they are in Baku and they're not able to kind of get that benefit. But I agree with you, Ollie. I think the key words for me for Italy so far is authority, both on and off the ball and hunger. And although they weren't able to score more than one against Wales in the other games, what we've seen is a side cruising and comfortable, and they've still been looking for those extra goals going forwards. They're playing with a smile on their face. So providing they've got the momentum and because they have got a kind draw heading into the knockout stage, I obviously see them being contenders, but I am still going to be intrigued if and when they play a slightly higher ranked team or a form team and they fall behind in a game. It's that response both in terms of mentality and tactically that I'm going to be most intrigued by. It'll be interesting to see if they maintain the confidence as well from these performances. So if they do fall behind, they will have that going on. Look, there's some great games that we haven't talked about in the last few days with some big sides. So let's talk about perhaps some of the opposition that Italy will undoubtedly be facing perhaps later on in this tournament. Uh, And let's start with the incredible game between Portugal and Germany. Paul, I'd love to know your thoughts on the Germans bounce back from their defeat to France and they put in this excellent performance against Portugal particularly in the second half thoroughly enjoyable attacking football from both sides going forward and an absolute thriller of a game which just highlights when these two quality sides meet in the Euros we can get real high caliber entertainment with our football I, I think that the Germans and I include this pod in that kind of went under the radar and have been somewhat underrated by people I mean it's it's a dangerous thing to ever underestimate Germany because even the poor teams that they've had in the past have always competed very well in tournaments. I think back to 2002 is a good example of that. Um, but this was seriously impressive stuff. And um, they've, laid down, they've laid down a real, a real marker there because like, like like we're saying, you can only beat what's in front of you. But this is the, the, the real, probably the only blockbuster match we've had of the tournament to, so far. We've had, with, with the exception of France versus Germany, where you've got two big guns going after each other. And I think that Germany's performance here has laid down a marker for the rest of the tournament that they're going to be um, very, very dangerous. But I was, I, I think all of us weren't impressed by Portugal in the, in the opening match. And I, I seriously wasn't impressed with them again. I don't know what's going on. Um, I, I think that, I don't know, maybe maybe they're struggling under the under the the, the, the guise of, of one of the favourites of this tournament. I think a lot of people did fancy them to go to go well and go go deep into this tournament. And maybe they're struggling a little bit with that. But again, I, there's a, there's, there's a lack of coherence and a lack of tactical strategy within Portugal's team right now, and, and Germany definitely took advantage of it. I think um, I think the reason why the the Germans perhaps gone under the radar a little bit. I mean, when you look at the the front three that they played against the Portuguese, there's a lot of pace, and obviously Müller has the experience as well to control and dictate. But you'd never say Serge Gnabry is going to be that out and out goal scorer for you and, and lead the line in that sense. The difference is is the the quality they get from the wide positions going through and the stability they have with Tony Cruz and Gundogan, particularly against the Portuguese, it allowed them to completely control that game in the middle of the park and, and the Portuguese just were completely undone. Aside from the fact I thought at one point they were playing a, a perfect sort of boxing match against the Germans of trying the rope-a-dope, let themselves run themselves ragged and then hit on the counter as they did to get the opening breakthrough. But but as you say, Paul, the, the Portuguese really did, well, I guess, flounder in the second 45 minutes, Ben. Is is there a, a case with the Germans that this is a result that they're now going to build on and go from strength to strength to strength and people are have, going to have to keep their eyes on them going through this tournament? I think so. And, you know, being in such a tough group and starting relatively tamely by losing to France, 
I think it's given Germany a wake up call. And that's a strange thing to say about the Germans, especially in such a difficult group and Hungary, of course, and no pushover as well. But I think Yogi Love was very disappointed with the kind of venom in the opening game against the French, who they almost showed too much respect to. And this was a German team from an attacking point of view that played with a lot more width, a lot more swagger, a lot more movement, a lot more versatility. And they really killed off the game. And it was end to end, obviously, to some extent. But every time seemingly Germany came under a form of threat, they were able to find that kind of clinical nature in the final third. And that was partly, I think, down to Gerson's, but also Havertz had a good game too. And I was just generally really impressed with Germany's balance, but also the adaption between the two games. I think it's really easy when you know that three potentially go through from a group and all three of the big sides in this group, even though it didn't happen for Portugal, would fancy their chances of beating Hungary. So you can have that kind of mentality in perhaps your opening game. Um, and I think Germany fell into this category of like, oh, maybe we should be a bit more timid. Maybe we can just get a point because anything in the bag in the first game, particularly when you're a higher ranked team, puts you in a very strong position just to go through. And that's my only kind of criticism of the tournament so far, that there are too many teams looking at it because third is OK or four points is probably OK. Mm. that are sort of a bit more conservative and playing within themselves. But the contrast, I think, between Germany tactically in terms of sharpness, hunger, venom going forwards, width movement, pretty much every category on the ball and their movement off it was superb. There's question marks about them at the back. And I think if you look at the tournament at large, that's where I think that they might come under challenges in the latter stage of the tournament because they're not going to put four past everybody. But I was very impressed by Germany and they've now got the momentum with them. So I do think that they are not a team that anybody who's higher ranked than them would want in the knockout stages. Is that quality stylistically because of the tactician they've got at the helm as a manager for Germany? And, and that's actually what's going to help them get through into the latter part of this tournament or is going to be a big reason for why they potentially go far in this tournament? I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what you think, Paul, but I just look at managers and tactics and managers with experience and managers without experience. And even like Mancini, tons of games now for Italy, bit of a bugbear because of his previous as a player with Italy. But I look at him on the touchline versus a Yogi Love, and I think, what if you got into a tactical headache? Who would you rather have? You know, they're both quite animated. They can both be quite bold at times, but I feel like one possibly could just end up boiling over and looking a bit more clueless. Maybe that's a little bit harsh on Mancini, but I do feel that his personality might get the better of him in that scenario. Just wanting to double down on the Italians more and more in this. This is outrageous, Ben. Unbelievable. Just gets the chance to stick the knife in. They've just qualified with three, with nine points from nine, mate. You can't give him a break at all. He was at Leicester as a player briefly, so I actually have a very soft spot for him. And I have huge respect for what he did during his time at Man City as well. But I just wonder um, whether Yogi Love might have, you know, even though actually he's lost his way at times at Germany and has been under huge criticism, I just wonder whether in the big moment, in the split second, I don't know what you think, Paul, I think I would still rather have him on the touchline making that core tactical change or making that key substitution versus Mancini. Well, we've, we've managed to go 16 minutes into this podcast and not mentioned the England game yet. Um, which I <laughs> was... But I do think I do think that the England game um, is a good reference point for, for exactly what you're saying, Ben. Um, Southgate doesn't have that experience. Um, 
he doesn't have the tactical know-how of some of these other coaches in the tournament and it, it came to pass on Friday night like he had no idea how to break down Scotland and we are by, by no stretch a good team um, at the top level of this tournament they're going to play much better teams than us and they didn't really he didn't really have a, a plan there and I, I think that what you're saying is is correct it's when, when games are tight in tournament football coaches um, that's, that's where coaches earn their money and Yogi Lowe certainly earned it yesterday and I'm, I'm just not convinced that Southgate is ever going to, going to do that for, for England change a match um, from his t- tactical position to allow them to go and win a game I just don't think he's got that in him and I think that's going to be to England's detriment later in this tournament Paul, the reason why we didn't mention England against Scotland yet was because we were trying to talk about interesting games that entertain people. And there was, a, unless you're a Scotland fan and really enjoyed watching them grind out the nil-nil against England, it was one of the most unentertaining games that we've had in this tournament so far. I'd actually go as far as saying the two England games have been two of the worst games to watch in this tournament so far, probably for the reasons that you're stating about the tactical inability of Southgate but also because England don't have somebody that's really grabbing the ball by the horns and trying to create something out of either of the two games that they've had apart from Calvin Phillips's assist for the opening goal uh, of the tournament of the game against Croatia. I mean, it was <laughs> dreadful to watch. Right, and, I, and I, obviously I was. Um, and I'm looking at the bench. The one guy I don't want to come on the park is Jaden Sancho. He's the <laughs> one guy that I don't want to face as a Scotland fan. I don't want to see him getting warmed up and coming on the pitch. And the fact that he doesn't start for this England team I, I will never make sense to me. I, I'm sorry, it, it just won't. Like I, I can understand some of the other decisions that Southgate makes and mm. how he tries to fit people into the team. But this, the, the Sancho one is just, is just mystifying to me that you've got a guy of that immense talent and he's, he's not he's not being picked. And maybe it's maybe it's Southgate doesn't watch him as regularly because he's playing in Germany and he watches a lot more Premier League football because he's based here. And obviously during lockdown, it's been even more difficult to travel to see players. Maybe there's a bit of that in it, I don't know. But the guy is world class and most other teams in this tournament would be crying out for him. Imagine Spain, for example, would be desperate mm-hmm. for a guy like Sancho and England aren't even using him. It's just, I don't get it. I, I really don't. I don't Maybe you've got th- some thoughts on it, Ben, but I, I, I can't really get my head around it. I just feel like the England we're seeing has paid too much respect to both opponents and they have to set a tone as an attacking team that are going to be able to kill off games. Otherwise, they're almost mirroring how, in my opinion so far, we've sort of seen Switzerland play, at least in the two games prior to the victory that they've just got. You just feel they're lethargic, they're hesitant, and there's no balance either on the field. So everything's kind of gone down the left-hand side. And I know there was kind of criticism about the first selection made in the 1-0 victory over Croatia, particularly Trippier to that point. But I think they had one defined tactic against Croatia, knowing that that's an ageing team, knowing that Croatia didn't really have a threat. And then Scotland did have a threat. They took the ball by the horns. They were up for the game and England were kind of rocked. And the only real surprise for me watching the Scotland game was that Scotland didn't score. And then from England's point of view, there's no real service to Kane. I completely agree with you about Sancho. Those absolutely no reason not to involve Grealish earlier or even start him in that game. Because, you know, when you think England-Scotland as an England fan, you think naturally and it gets laboured constantly back to Euro 96. And I'm not hugely interested in the game specifically or even the Gaza goal, but more just Gaza, the player. And it's that kind of versatile playmaker that I think is needed to kind of 
control the pace of the game, work in tight spaces. And yeah, England have got a variety of them. You could say Foden falls into that category. You could say Mount falls into that category. You could say Grealish falls into that category. But I just think that tactically, because all of those players are sort of still, whichever one start, trying to work around Kane, and because Kane to me doesn't look fully fit, and because he's lost his scoring touch, it's stagnant, which means to me, I don't know what you think, Ollie, because he is ultimately England's biggest weapon, at least on paper. But to me, you've either got to play these interchangeable players and you've got to play with pace and you've got to play with width, but width on both sides. And then I'm not sure whether Kane's the best person to be the focal point in that system. I think you bring him on if you desperately need a goal and there's a throw of the dice to be made. Or alternatively, you stick with Kane, but then these tactics aren't suiting Kane. So I'm not against... Kane starting, and I think Southgate's already said that he'll start against the Czech Republic, but I'm against Kane starting in these tactics, or I'm pro these tactics, but then Kane's the wrong person to be leading the line because he's not either fit or he's sort of too rigid for the way England are playing. Harry Kane, Harry Kane's dropping far too deep at the moment and taking himself out of being the front man. But what we've seen, so many people praise Kane for being a guy that can drop deep and can be a bit of a playmaker as well as a goal scorer. But you've also got Foden, Mount and Sterling who can all be playmakers behind. And I think there's a case actually of there isn't one playmaker that the ball goes through like a Jorginho in the Italy side who is the distributor and then puts it out to the wide men that provide the quality from the flanks. You see those four all dropping deep, all coming to try and be the focal point of the attack to for other people to play off. But then they're all getting each other's way and then it just gets very static off the ball. The lack of movement from England it, when they've got either a Phillips or a Rice on the ball in the heart of the pitch is outrageous how immensely static, as I say, it is. It's baffling that none of these players have the intelligence to be able to try and find a bit of space or work around each other, make some crossing runs, a diagonal run from the right flank to the left or something to open up a sp bit of space in behind. And I know it's difficult when a side like Scotland sit back, but I think it might just be a case if you've got too many cooks spoiling the broth at the moment because they all think that they should be the person that's kind of running the show a little bit. And at least when Grealish came on, he tried to take that role himself and make it his own and not allow anybody else to do it. But it was too little too late by that point. Uh, Paul, I just want to get your thoughts as well quickly on Billy Gilmore because... That was something that on our private WhatsApp chat came up as you didn't really understand why Gilmore was in the side. And then he goes on and puts arguably in the man of the match performance for Scotland on the evening and working so hard in that defensive midfield role just in front of the front uh, back three. Yeah, he just tried to remind me of all the things I've got wrong, wrong during this talk. <laughs> oh, like yeah, I mean, Gilmore for me wasn't about, um, it wasn't about talent. He's obviously got talent. It was a bit more about physicality. Because um, I, th I think we, we, I felt we had to match England a bit in there and, and going up against Phillips and Rice or whatever, um, physically bigger, bigger men. I think there was a bit of that involved in it, and certainly it set pieces as well. He's <clears throat> there's a reason why some of the taller guys played against the Czechs because they were a physical, imposing side, and I thought Clark would do the same here, but he didn't. He played Billy, and it was a masterful performance to the point where he's probably undroppable now. Um, it was it was that good. He he orchestrated proceedings for us, and as long as he's fit and able, um, you, you would imagine that Gilmore will play for Scotland for the next decade. Um, first choice on the team sheet now. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, it was that, le that level of performance. And um, Chelsea have certainly got some very good midfielders and Kante and, and Jorginho ahead of him at Chelsea. I just hope that he gets to, 
to get to produce this level of performance more at club level next season, whether that's for Chelsea or whether it's going in loan or, or something like that, because talent like that needs to be nurtured and played on a regular basis. And it'll be a, a real shame if he only manages a couple of hundred minutes again next season and um, with that ominous pair in front of him at Chelsea. I would really hope that he, he plays more. Um, that's that's my only that's my only niggling doubt is if he stays at Chelsea is he going to play but pound for pound like maybe the most exciting Scotland club we've had in maybe 30 years I would say um, that he was the performance was that outstanding for me and um, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing him play get over over 100 caps for us hopefully you know the thing that really irritated me about this game just on a final note is the fact that you you had all the talk of England Scotland Euro 96 Gascoigne all of that and then you end up having Phil Foden come out almost paying tribute to Gaza with his hairstyle. And it's it's it just epitomises the England attitude at times of still living on former glories and people caring about the discussion around former glories, even the players on the pitch, perhaps, rather than going out there and doing their own thing and, and getting the job done. And I think that's always going to be a problem with, with English football at a, a lot of levels, to be honest, until that attitude changes. Just, just one more thing because I have to, I have to show off, guys. But what, just one more thing for me. Phil Foden has apparently said today that um, the rest of his teammates will will dye their hair blonde if England win the Euros. What are you talking about? You've just drew now now with one of the worst teams in the tournament. Why are you talking about winning the Euros? Be quiet. Go away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Come back when you when you beat somebody convincingly.